Thank you, preacher. Thank you very much. Open your Bibles, the book of Acts, chapter 8, if you would, please. And I'm so honored to be here. I love this conference. I love this church. I love the Van Geldrens. One of my desires as uh, the Lord allowed me to start traveling around, even before I knew the term networking, was to try to help my friends who had the same heart and the same passion and the same commitment to Christ and to truth to get to know each other. And it's been my privilege many places to tell people who didn't know anything about this place, about the wonderful things that are going on here. I love the spirit. I love the heart. I love your theme. Now, I'm a very uncomplicated person. I'm very simple. My dad is real smart. He has an IQ that's nine points over genius. And I don't know where that went in the genetic pool, but I know <laughs> where it didn't go. And, uh, but even dad would sell, tell you that uh, you can be intelligent without being an intellectual. And so if I'm simple, that's just the only thing I know, all right? I, I used to try to figure things out for a long, long time. I, I was trying to understand the, the crucified life, being crucified with Christ, or abiding in Christ, or being consecrated, or being filled with the Holy Spirit, and how those were all distinct and different, and how they related to one another. And I'm not sure this is right, but the best I can tell, they're all the same. And it, it just, you're either depending on yourself, or you're depending on the Lord, and the Holy Spirit. So if you, you forgive me for being simple, I, I love what the desire is of this meeting. I love the title, the Victory Conference. And I want to read you something. You see if you can figure who said it. It just came across my desk at the end of last week. I say that we can have great revivals now, as great revivals as the world ever saw. I mean, we can have mass evangelism shaking whole cities with thousands saved in a single campaign. I say that the gospel can again grip whole communities, whole areas, and affect the moral standards, the philosophy of life of the general public. I say that as a result of such mass revivals, we may have a new and mighty missionary impetus that will win millions of souls around the world that will build and support great Christian institutions like those that came with the ministry of great evangelists of the past. That's real close to what was in the letter I got from Dr. Wayne Van Gelderen in my room today. The last time I was here, Brother Van Gelderen said, I'm tired of it staying within the walls of the church. I want to see it move outside and affect the world around us. Don't worry about that. It's all right. I thank God that I speak on cell phones more than ye all. <laughs> Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words uninterrupted by a cell phone than 10,000 words. <laughs> that statement was made by evangelist John R. Rice. It was reprinted in a recent sermon in the sword of the Lord entitled Rekindling the Fires of Revival. And he was right when he said it. And it's right now. And I've been asked to talk about the connection from revival to soul winning, how the genuine revival always brings the winning of souls. Winning souls does not constitute revival. You can have soul winning without revival, but you could not have revival without soul winning. 
Because if revival means to begin again to live the normal Christian life, you have to be telling people about Christ. That's what it's all about. So if you look in the book of Acts, there's, a, I think, a very apt illustration of what I was asked to talk about today. Philip the Evangelist is in Samaria. Now you understand that the Assyrians came and took the ten tribes of the northern confederacy into captivity. And then they tried to repopulate some of that land and it didn't work very well. Their people kept getting eaten by lions. And it's hard to get people to want to go live somewhere where you keep getting eaten by lions. And so they figured maybe they had offended the gods of that land. And the Bible tells us in the Old Testament how they decided to try to add to the worship of their pagan gods, the worship of the God of the nation of Israel. And they had a synergistic religion. They decided that maybe they could incorporate some elements of faith with some elements of worldliness. Did you know that's not a new idea? <laughs> the emergent church is just compromised. It's been around for a long, long time. And so the Samaritans had this half-breed kind of religion, if you will, and they were despised by the Jews. The Bible says the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. When the Lord Jesus went there, and he must needs go through, Samaria's unusual. They'd usually take a much more difficult, circuitous path to go around the edge of that land and keep them from going where the Samaritans were. So you've got to understand that this is not like revival in Alabama. This is not like revival in the United States of America. This is an amazing thing that these people who have been enemies of the Jews, no racial enmity that exists in the United States today is anywhere near the enmity that was between the Jews and the Samaritans. So Philip went down to the city of Samaria... Verse 5 of Acts 8, and preached Christ unto them. That's good. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake. And hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits, crying with loud voice came out of many that were possessed and with them and many taken with palsies and, they that, and that were lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. And the Bible goes on to tell us what Philip did, how that he preached unto them, the Bible says, the things of the kingdom of God. And the news of this spread to other believers, and the Bible says when the apostles, verse 14, which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent under them, Peter and John. They were coming to check this out. They were coming to, I suspect, see, is it the real deal? What's happening? Uh, we want to be there if God's doing something. We want to see what's going on. And the Bible says, I love this, verse 15, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then it tells you the story of Simon the sorcerer who wanted to make merchandise of the power of God. 
You know, Peter confronted him. He thought he could, Simon thought he could buy this gift, and he said, thy money perish with thee. And right after that, the Bible says in verse 26, well, let's read verse 25, and they, when they testified and preached the word of the Lord, returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south. There are many days I wish the angel of the Lord would say that to me. <laughs> Under the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he rose and went. I like that. The angel said, Go, and he rose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. This man was a seeker of truth. He thought Jerusalem was the place he would find the truth. He knew enough to want to go there. I can only imagine how disappointed he must have been. To see the corruption to see the venality, to see the abuse that was taking place under the name of God in that city. He was returning, sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him. I hope you're getting this. I don't want to repeat myself, but on the other hand, I've got to go so long I don't have enough material, so I might as well. (laughs) This chariot's going down the road, and God says, Philip, go hook up with that chariot. Go join yourself to that chariot. The chariots go faster than people on foot. And Philip's got to run. You're driving down the road and some guy's running after you. What do you think? Oh, a blessing. <laughs> a witnessing opportunity. What do you know? And this guy's somebody. He's the, he's, the, he's the treasure of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. He probably has a significant sum of money. He's at least in charge of a lot of money. And I, I, I think he's getting nervous. I went out one day with my wife. We visited a lady who'd been coming to the church and needed to get baptized. wound up talking to her husband, who was home. He had not been to the church at that point. His name was Ralph Parrish. And I gave Ralph the gospel, and he did not get saved. And I I really felt like God was working in his heart, and I I tried to do all that I could to encourage him to trust Christ and do what the Bible says, persuade him. But he, he wasn't ready to trust Christ. And so we prayed, and I left, and... I'd gotten back in the car, and he ran out after me, waving his hand. He made a motion for me to open the window. So I did. (laughs) Enough for words and not fist. I mean, I I thought, what's this guy want? Is he mad at me? And what he said was, would you pray that prayer with me? I need God. (laughs) And God was working on his heart. But my first response wasn't, oh, good. This is kind of a crazy story. And... Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I accept some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture 
which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened him out his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? How can I accept some man? There was a man of Ethiopia. And so some man, Philip told a man, the eunuch, about some other man, the Lord Jesus. Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. As they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, a lot of people today would say they believe that but would not have faith, but you've got to understand from this man's background and that time in history, that was a phenomenal declaration. That was a declaration made only because of the truth of the gospel that he had just heard. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went his way rejoicing. Well, Heavenly Father, guide me by your Spirit to say what would help I wish I knew exactly where everybody was. I wish I knew exactly the burdens of each person. I don't. You do. And so I pray and ask that as I, the best I know, yield myself and place myself in your hands and Holy Spirit under your control, that you direct me to say that which would please you, which would further the wonderful aim of this tremendous meeting. Lord, we'll thank you for all you do, and we praise you in advance for any good that comes from this time. In Jesus' name, amen. What an amazing revival. To go to a place that was an enemy of the ethnicity of the evangelist. To go to a place that had been messed up in their doctrine and theology forever. To go to a place that was so bad that most Jews never even wanted to travel there and would never talk to anybody who was in that place and to see this phenomenal revival. Now, what would you do if you're in the middle of a revival like that? When we have experienced revival in our church, a, a, an awakening time and an obvious time of God touching and changing hearts, uh, there's some things that happen. One thing is you can't wait to get to church. Another thing is you don't want to leave. And the services tend to get longer and nobody cares. And we've had people go home and say, we had a great two-hour service tonight. And they're excited about it. The one thing you don't want to do is leave while it's going on. You know, stay there and soak it up and enjoy it. Watch God work. You have those times you go home and you, you really don't care to see anything on the television or read anything in the newspaper. And your mind and heart is so absorbed with God and who he is and what the Lord's been doing in your life and the lives of others. That's all you really care about. And God says, uh, Philip... I want you to go somewhere. You ever have missionaries come to your church? What's the first question you ask a missionary when you meet him? Where are you going to go? Well, here's Philip's answer. I go down to the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. I'm a missionary to I-94.
He didn't send him to a place. He sent him to a road. And it's an odd road, a desert road, a, a road that's not going to have the kind of prospect and potential that Philip had right there in Samaria. So I want you to notice a few lessons here. There's a lesson about the will of God. The first thing I would suggest to you is that the will of God is clear. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye, Psalm 32, verse 8. Now, you may believe differently. If you're, if you're here and your pastor says anything different than I say, then he's right and I'm wrong. And he'll straighten it out when you get home. But I don't think it's a hard thing to find the will of God. As a matter of fact, I told you I'm real simple. I've been almost 39 years, uh, May 18th, the Lord lets me live. Pastor that long, Jesus doesn't come back first. I will have been pastor of the First Baptist Church 39 years. And I went there when I was seven. <laughs> I went there when I was 22. Pastor Gilder and I are the same. Got out of high school a year early. I, don't, I wasn't smart, but they were tired of me. So they just <laughs> pushed me on ahead. And... Uh, I knew God wanted me to go there. And people say, why did you stay so long? Because he never told me to do anything else. <laughs> I, you just do what he last told you until he tells you to do something else. Amen. Well, didn't you ever wonder if you were done there? Sure. <laughs> did you get discouraged? A little bit. Got more disgusted than I did discouraged. But <laughs> uh, Yeah. That just uh, I, I didn't spend any time agonizing over it. Well, there's been a couple times something else came up, and I had to be willing to move if God wanted me to move. And the, and the Lord wanted me to be reminded that my life is in His hands, and I can't stay there just because I've been there a long time and love the people and enjoy what the Lord's doing there. But God said, I'll tell you what to do. And He told Philip. He said, Rise, go down toward the south under the way that goeth from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. The second lesson about the will of God is that the will of God is contrary. That is, it's contrary to human opinion most of the time. I mean, if, if I had been advising Philip, if Philip called me up and he said, Hey, uh, I got this uh, wonderful revival going on, all these things are happening, but I kind of feel maybe I should go down and, and just go down on this road. I'd say, well, I don't know, Philip. Seems to me, man, God's working, people getting saved, and you're seeing revival among this portion of the population that we never would have thought would be open to the truth. And it seems to me you might want to stay where you are. I always tell people if they ask me they should go or stay, I always tell them to stay. That's all I know. People say, man, it's amazing you stayed that long. No, it's, it's easy to stay. It's hard to go. You've got to pack up. You've got to meet new people. You got to, it's hard to go. The other reason I have moods is my wife's got too much stuff in the basement. I don't want to take it anyplace. <laughs> I'm going to tell you my call to preach. I hadn't intended to do it. This, this dramatic story will just thrill your soul. 
I went to Bob Jones Academy so that I could get done with high school a year early. So I went there at the end of my sophomore year in public school and took some extra classes. Had to stay for summer school to get the classwork done that I needed. At the end of the year, they gave us a little card. That was in the data processing days, the early forerunners of today's computers. And, and they asked us to fill out and say what we'd major in when we came back to college. I had no idea, so I left it blank. As a young man, my parents taught me when people asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up, to say whatever the Lord wants me to be. My dad never tried to push me into the ministry, but it wasn't hard for me to go in the ministry because my dad loved it. Dad's one of the most optimistic, encouraging, happy servants of the Lord that you'll ever meet in your life. He's 86 years old today. I talked to him on the phone. He'll be saying, it's amazing. And he'll tell you about somebody who led to Christ or somebody that he led to Christ years ago or some other good report. He's always excited about what God is doing. And I just always said, whatever the Lord wants me to do. Now, I said it often enough, I came to believe it. I left the card blank, and I went home for six weeks, and I came back, and they had enrolled me in humanities. You know, I I was a human. I figured that shouldn't be hard. And I looked at that card, and when I looked at it, I said, that's wrong. I'm supposed to preach. And I walked down to the office. I said, this is wrong. I'm supposed to be in Bible. I'm waiting for the shock and awe to set in about this thrilling story. You're supposed to be under deep conviction. You're supposed to struggle about it. No, I just knew it. God's will was clear. God will tell you what he wants you to do. See, he hadn't told me anything. Then keep doing what he last told you. But it'll be contrary sometimes. He'll take you from a great opportunity, humanly speaking, to a barren place sometimes. He'll have you leave the comfort of the crowd and go all by yourself where you don't have anybody with you. That's what he did to Philip. Then you have a lesson about the ways of God. I love Psalm 103. The Bible said God made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. There's a difference between knowing someone's acts and their ways. In other words, Moses knew something of the character and the nature and the behavior of God. Brother Sam Davison, one of my favorite preachers and a a wonderful servant of God, and I were talking one day and I had had a conversation with a man who was really off on a number of doctrinal issues and it was a man that I knew some and had some prominence in independent fundamental Baptist circles and and uh, I, I said, uh, you know, he's real smart. He's way smarter than I am, but he doesn't know the Bible. I said, you couldn't know the Bible and say the things he says. And Brother Davison said, I'll take it a step further. You couldn't know God and say the things he says. So what are the ways of God? How does he work here? Well, how, how God works, God uses Scripture Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God uses his word to tell us what to do. The Bible says that Philip, when he's preaching, and the apostles have been preaching the gospel, they preach the Bible. But God uses the submissive. Can you imagine the turmoil and the potential confusion Philip must have felt when God gave him this instruction? It didn't make any sense. It'd go, an evangelist in the middle of a revival. What could be better than that? 
Evangelists love revival. I don't think anybody understands revival any better than Dr. Rick Flanders. I love to hear him speak. I love to talk to him about that and other subjects. He's one of the wisest men I know and understands the Bible as, as well as anybody I know. And I, I, he comes back, and we have the privilege of having three evangelists that work out of our church. And he'll come back if he's there on a Wednesday night. I'll often say, Brother Flanders, come on up and tell us what the Lord's been doing. And I love to hear those reports. And, and he loves revival. That's what, that was his passion when he was a pastor. That was his passion when he entered evangelism. Now that he's had many good and blessed years in that, it continues to be his passion. But when God told Philip, leave here and go to Gaza, the Bible says, and he arose and went. How hard is it for God to get us to do something? One of the keys, I think, to being used of God and seeing the things God wants you to see in his work is to be immediately obedient. I was in a bowling alley one time. Our church was there, and my dad and I were talking. Dad was in our area, and he now lives in South Carolina. And I was telling him about an evangelist who had been having a little tough time financially, and I told him I was going to take an offering for him that night. My dad reached into his pocket, pulled out his wallet, and he dug around in there, and he got out a folded-up $50 bill he'd been hiding from my mother. And he said, is he having a hard time? I said, well, yeah. And he said, here, give him this. Now, Dad didn't have much money. I was going to say then. Dad's never had much money. <laughs> if my dad had $50 in the morning, he's not likely to have it at night, but he's just as likely to have given it to you as he is to himself. Very generous and very willing to respond. I said, no, Dad, I'm taking an offering for him tonight. It's okay. My dad says something I don't think I'll ever forget. He said, son, I learned a long time ago I have to obey the impulses of the Holy Spirit immediately or I will talk myself out of them. We have learned from Brother Flanders and from Brother Van Gelderen about corporate prayer. I have to be honest with you, I had a little hard time with the idea of ladies praying out loud. I just wasn't sure what I thought about that. So I read the Bible. It'll help you if you read the Bible. It'll... It'll mess up a lot of your ideas, but it'll help you. <laughs> and you know, when they were praying for Peter when he's in jail, there was a young lady, Rhoda, she was at the prayer meeting. Doesn't say she prayed a lot, but she's part of the meeting. I said, okay, that's all right for me. I don't have ladies lead in prayer. I was preaching in Sullivan, Missouri one time. I'd taken my wife with me to the meeting, and uh, the preacher wanted me to come stand up in front afterwards and have all the people come by and shake my hand. And I was standing up there right in front of the platform, and he said, we're so glad Brother Willette could come, and we're glad Sister Chrissy could come to this meeting. And Sister Chrissy, would you dismiss us in prayer? <laughs> I immediately went like that so that <laughs> the grin on my face would not be obvious to everybody. <laughs> Evangelist Hal Hightower was at that meeting. He didn't hide his grin. <laughs> but I'll often say to the people, sometimes, sometimes I say it afterwards, I say, is anybody here and you were supposed to pray and you didn't? You, you know when you're supposed to pray. <laughs> I, I've 
I flew up, I, all I do this week fly airplanes. I'm scheduled. I was scheduled for 12 flights, but I got off the airplane in Detroit and didn't take the flight to Saginaw so I could visit the hospital in the Detroit area yesterday on my way home from West Virginia. And one of those flights from somewhere to somewhere. I uh, I got monkeyed around and, and was barely able to get on the plane, was on standby. I got all the way to the back row. There was an empty seat in the middle, and there was a guy on the other side. He looked like a terrorist. <laughs> and he didn't look at me, and he didn't respond, and he didn't talk, and he stared out the window, and he had his headphones on, you know. Those are marvelous things. You get to share your music with the people around you. <laughs> I have a pair of Bose headphones. They're largely defensive mechanisms for me. <laughs> and he didn't talk at all. And, and I got to get up, and, and the Lord said, aren't you going to give that guy a tract? <laughs> oh, he doesn't want one. He's not interested. He'd turn it down. He's a terrorist. <laughs> and I said, can I give you something I wrote? Oh, Thanks. <laughs> Maybe if I'd talked to him sooner, I could have talked to him some more. Maybe I hadn't had a preconceived idea based on his appearance as to how he would respond to the gospel. I'd had a better opportunity. You know when you're supposed to have gone back. I, I mean, I've, I've had people, the Lord say, aren't you going to give that guy a track? Turn and go back and say, hey, I should have given you this. Can I give it to you now? I should have said this. Can I say it now? Hey, God, God leads you and instructs you in the way you should go. The problem is we are resistant. We reason and we figure and we have all our excuses. And, and a lot of the times God doesn't use us just because we're not submissive. And then God uses soul winners. God said, Philip, I want you to go and join yourself to this chariot. That's all he said. He didn't tell him what to do when he was there. Now, if he'd been like some of us, he'd have jumped up in the chariot and ridden along and say, okay, God, I did what you said. That's all he said was join thyself to this chariot. We, we, we're Jesuits, some of us. Legalists in the sense of just slicing and dicing so we get out of doing what's obvious that we ought to do. You know. I, I don't think anybody here would believe this, but in case you run into somebody who does, there's this nonsensical idea that one of the gifts God gives us is evangelism. And some of us have the gift of evangelism, and some of us don't. I was driving home from preaching somewhere some years ago and flipped across the radio to see if there's something worth listening to, and I heard a guy preaching, and turned out it was Chuck Swindoll, and he said, some of you have the gift of mercy, and some of you have the gift of giving, and some of you have the gift of evangelism. Oh, how I wish I had that gift. Well, he's correct in that he does not have that gift. Nor do you, nor do I, because there is no such gift. Read 1 Corinthians 12. Read Romans 12. It's not there. Now, just a couple things. In the first place, all the gifts are also commanded. Did you know if you don't have the gift of mercy, you're still supposed to be merciful? And if you don't have the gift of giving, you're still supposed to tithe? You understand? You can't get out of something just because that's not what you're best at. Some of you don't sing very well, but you're still supposed to sing with the congregation. They probably wouldn't let you in a choir here, but you sing with the congregation. <laughs> but if you look at the Great Commission, it's very simple. 
Lord Jesus says, go you therefore teach all nations. And Mark says, preach the gospel to every creature. This is baptizing them, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now, now we say that means you've got to teach and read the Bible and teach and to pray and teach and to walk with God, and that's great. But whatever it means we're supposed to teach them, it's got to mean that we've got to teach them to go tell people how to get saved because that's what he was talking about. These people, these uh, deeper life, exegetical, uh, seven languages necessary to understand the Bible, folks, they, they miss the context there. So it's real simple. I'm supposed to go and give the gospel to Wayne Van Geldren III. And he gets saved, and I help him understand baptism. He gets baptized. I teach him some things. One of the things I teach him is how to share the gospel. And he shares it with his father. And his father gets baptized, and his son shares with him how to share the gospel. And he shares it to his mother and on and on. Not, not uh, your mother, but your son's mother. See, Amway didn't invent multi-level marketing. The business about signing up people to sign up people to sign up people is inherent in the Great Commission. And God knew if Philip got there, he'd tell him about Jesus because that's what Philip did. A few years back, I preached at a conference in North Carolina and flew home on a Saturday. I was to preach that afternoon in Detroit. And though I'd flown into Flint, there wasn't time for me to go home and see my wife before I went to Detroit. So I just drove down to Detroit, got there a little early, and I was on a diet, so I was looking for a Subway that I could eat. Be careful about the Subway diet. Those people who go on those diets, they tend to take their clothes off afterwards. That one guy wore more clothes when he was heavy than when he was skinny, so watch those. But, so that's why I'm not dieting now. I want to be modest. And... I couldn't find one, but I found a Burger King, which was good. So <laughs> I sat down at the Burger King, got a chicken sandwich with no mayo and a glass of pop, we call it in Michigan. I know we call it pop here or soda. Uh, it was Diet Coke. And I was with, with my cell phone working on my Sunday school class, making all the calls. And I heard this little doodle-doodle-doo, doodle-doodle-doo, doodle I thought, boy, I'm in church. Someone's cell phone is going off. And <laughs> I kept making my calls. I got up to get a refill on my pop, and now you're not, you ladies won't believe this. The guys will understand this. It wasn't anybody's cell phone I was hearing. A guy had had a heart attack in Burger King, was lying on the ground. His shirt was off. He was all gray. They had a bunch of paramedics and police officers there working on him, and I had not noticed it. If you get my DVD that has the series on it, there's a series on the family. I explain that man's, men's minds are like laser. If I had a laser pointer, it would have one little red dot on the wall. All the energy focused in that one little red dot. There are actually biological reasons for that. And a woman's mind is not, I mean, a man, a man could be sitting home and the children will be putting the dog in the washing machine and the <laughs> cat in the microwave pouring red Kool-Aid on white carpet and... And he will not notice, and their wife will come home and say, Honey, why'd you let them do that? Well, I didn't notice. <laughs> How could you not notice? I was reading the sports page. <laughs> Legitimate excuse for a man. It really is. Woman's mind is not like laser, her mind's like radar. <laughs> lady be talking on the phone, answering the door, cooking supper. And a kid three rooms away picks up something they shouldn't have. She says, Put that down right now. <laughs> Anything within 100 miles shows up on the screen. 
So I watched them, and this was when defibrillators, uh, automatic defibrillators had just become popular, and they, they put this thing on, and it had this recorder that said, stand back, preparing to shock, shocking, bam. Body twitched and his heart didn't start, and they did it again and they did it again. They must have done it six times while I was watching, and I thought, man, I'm, I'm being a rubbernecker here. I'm not doing any good. So I went to the restroom. When I came out, the man's body was gone, the paramedics were gone, one police officer was left, and the kids that worked at Burger King were like this. I said to the officer, I said, sir, I'm a chaplain for the Saginaw County Sheriff's Department. I've been trained in critical incident stress debriefing. Is there Anything I could do to help? He said, well, yeah, maybe. He took me to the manager, and she said, yeah, please talk to these kids. I don't know what to tell them. So I, I sat down and talked to them of the things they teach you, which is pretty common sense stuff. It's not a bunch of gobbledygook. And then I said to those six young people there, I said, can I talk to you as a Baptist preacher for a minute? I said, to see something like this got to make you think about your own life, your own future. Can I tell you how to be sure you're on your way to heaven? They said, sure, and I gave them the gospel. Five of them trusted Christ. The other said they were already saved. Now, when I tell that story, people's reactions is, wow, stuff like that never happens to me. Go to Burger King. <laughs> you don't have those heart attacks at Subway. You've got to go to Burger King. <laughs> but well, the question the question we have to ask ourselves is what would you have done if you were there? Would you have talked to anybody about Jesus? See, you see the elements that God uses in so many scripture. Man's reading the prophet Isaiah. Submission. He says, go to the way toward Gaza, which is desert, and he went. A soul winner. All he had to do was say, join yourself to that chariot. And Philip knew that his purpose for being there was to give the gospel. Do you know that's why God lets you meet people? If I had not been a pastor, if I'd been what I was inclined to be, I would have been an attorney. I liked arguing with my mother. I figured I might as well get paid for it. I'm really glad I'm not. I mean, God's been good to me. I, I, I years ago preached in a city, and a man came into the lobby, and he had been in the sermon contest when I was in it at Bob Jones University. We preached together there, and, and I thought he'd won it, actually. And uh, I said, his name? I said, what are you doing? He said, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm here to preach tonight. And when he told me he was an attorney, I felt sorry for him. Because he was going to be a preacher. He's a preacher boy, just like me. And he preached in the contest, just like me. And now all he gets to do is, you know, argue people's legal matters. But a while back, the Lord had allowed us to come in contact with several of the members of our Supreme Court in the state of Michigan. And one of them called me up. He's been very friendly to me, a Jewish man. He's not saved. I've given him the gospel in different forms, different times. And he's very, very kind to me, very friendly, Justice Markman. And he said... I would like to appoint you to the Attorney Grievance Commission. I only had the vaguest idea what that was. It's when an attorney messes up. Somebody complains about them. This group of nine people, six lawyers and three non-lawyers, decide what charges should be brought against them. It's a, a parallel to the function of a prosecuting attorney in the legal system. 
And there are a bunch of people. There's one guy whose mother's on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, highest you can go without being at the United States Supreme Court. There's a guy who was the former president or chairman of the board of Michigan State University, directors of banks, all kind of people. And you know why God let me be there? Oh, because you always wanted to be a lawyer. No. God let me be there because I can tell some people about Jesus. And I've given out tracts and witnessed to them. Found out some of them are already saved, and, and uh, God's given me favor with some of those people. But, but I'm not there so I can tell you, I know the former chairman of the board of Michigan State University. I'm, I'm there so I can witness to them. And, and, and if you're right with God, you see every opportunity to meet somebody is an opportunity to share the gospel. And then the last thing about the ways of God is that God magnifies his son. He opened his mouth. <laughs> At the same scripture, and he preached unto him, Jesus. Yeah, I love your theme. <laughs> I love the truth, the concept, the simplicity of it. We preach not ourselves. Boy, I'm glad about that. <laughs> I'd hate to go knocking on doors. Hi, I'm here to tell you about me. <laughs> but if we think about it, some of us talk a little more about us than we do about him. God magnifies his son. And then there's a third lesson here. There's a lesson about the work of God. You see, the work of God in salvation. Now, please, I don't, I don't believe in getting people to say a prayer. Saying a prayer doesn't save anybody. You're not saved by praying. You're saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I don't believe in just getting somebody to repeat something. I've seen people get somebody to say something so they can notch their gun, and it was obvious the person was just getting rid of them. So I'm not talking about just some thing where you're trying to, you know, run your little plan and manipulate people. But please understand, it's not hard for people to get saved. It's not hard. That, uh, that rank believer in easy believism, Bob Jones Jr., stood in our pulpit and preached on Lazarus. And he said that Jesus told them to roll the stone away. He said there's a lot of people putting stones in the way of folks coming to Jesus. We're not supposed to put stones in the way. We're supposed to get stones out of the way. He said, it's not hard to get saved. It's easy to get saved. All you have to do is believe on Jesus. His father said the same thing. Bob Jones Sr. said, it's not hard to get people saved. It's hard to get them to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel's real simple. And you can be saved in one brief encounter with the truth. Ford Porter wrote the little tract, God's Simple Plan of Salvation. I heard him tell this story. He was riding a bicycle and going out, passing out tracks. He was standing at a street corner, and, and he gave a guy on a bus a track through the window of the bus, and, and he gave him the gospel, but the bus was starting to go, and so he was kind of going along on his bicycle and giving the guy the gospel, and the guy trusted Christ. And he was really excited about that. He went back, and somebody said, Ford, don't tell anybody that story. Nobody believed it. I couldn't get saved like that. So he didn't tell anybody. Now, six months later, he's at the same corner, but without his bicycle. He's passing out tracks, and he engaged man in conversation. The man said, no, I'm saved. He said, how'd you get saved? He said, you know, about six months ago, I was on a bus. 
There's a man with a bicycle came by here and gave me a gospel tract. My dad never heard the gospel until he was 21 years of age. I think I'll tell you the story because I love it. It's an example of what we're talking about here. Dad had been in World War II or in the Army, actually was drafted at the end of World War II and got out a little bit after that. And he thought he'd go to Columbia University and be a radio announcer. Dwight Eisenhower was the president there by then, and he thought that'd be a good place to go. He lived in Massachusetts. New York City wasn't that far away. He was riding back from a visit to Columbia on the bus, and he met a couple of guys that he'd known when he was little, probably... 10, 12 years of age. They were the only guys on the street he lived in <coughs> in Springfield, Massachusetts that weren't Catholic. Dad was a <coughs> vague Catholic. His mom was Methodist. Dad was Catholic. He seldom went to church at all. And they asked him what he's going to do, and he told them, they said, oh, you ought to go to our college. We have a radio program. We have our own radio station. They said, where do you go? They said, we go to Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina. And Dad said there was something different about him. He said they acted different, they talked different, they looked different. They got his name and his address, and he got material from Bob Jones, and he filled it out, and he was accepted at Bob Jones before he was accepted at Columbia. And almost, we would say, humanly speaking, on a whim, he got on a bus and in January 1949, went down to Greenville, South Carolina, sitting in the Road Hayer Auditorium, heard old Bob Jones Sr. preach the gospel, and my dad never had heard it before. And he said, man, that sounds like a good deal to me. <laughs> Now, he'll tell you today that he was not saved when he went forward and Monroe Parker met him at the front. In fact, my dad was grinning when he came forward and Dr. Parker thought that was inappropriate for a response to a gospel message. He said, what are you laughing at? So well, that characteristic, we grin, I'm sorry. But dad will tell you he was saved sitting in his seat because <laughs> that's when he decided to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They formalized it with a prayer afterwards. And here's a man that's he's interested. He's looking for truth. He knows about the Old Testament. He knows something about the Jewish faith. He knows nothing about the Messiah. And in one chariot ride, he hears the gospel and he believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't make it complicated. Don't make it hard. God made it easy. I, I am reading now at the request of a friend of mine the 20th anniversary edition of the Gospel According to Jesus. It is really the Gospel According to John MacArthur. And it's the most amazing book. My friend's going to write some things about it. He asked me to read it over, and I've dog-eared the pages and made little notes. Uh, on one page it says, uh, salvation is all of God. Man does nothing for it. In another page he says, some diligently seek it. Another page he says, there's nothing you do to get saved. Another page he says, you have to surrender uh, your will. And another page he says, you have to be willing to surrender everything you have in order to get saved. Now, friend, Brother Chapel, as one asked me to read the book, he said, he said, I wouldn't know how to get saved after reading that book. <laughs> it makes it so hard. It makes it so confusing. Now, now don't short sell it. I'll tell you one thing I do believe. We need to make sure people know they are in trouble with God because of their sin when we give them the gospel. I'm not a proponent of the four spiritual laws. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yes, it's you're going to go to hell if you don't get saved. <laughs> Without the law, I had not the knowledge of sin. And I believe in explaining clearly that a man is in bad trouble with God because of his sin. But 
the gospel, you know, the, the, the gospel is really not the work of man. It is the work of God. We get to be messengers about it. And, and God, the Holy Spirit, does the work in their heart that's necessary. If we're empowered by him and depending on him and relying on him when we give the gospel. So a couple couple thoughts about a lesson about the work of God, not in salvation now, but in soul winning. There's a simple pattern here. He opened his mouth and preached unto him Jesus. There's a scriptural pattern. You just go tell everybody with this. I guess I'm not clear in the outline. There's a pattern. It's a simple pattern. It's a scriptural pattern. It's a just what the Bible is. You're on an exercise sometime. Just read the soul-winning encounters of the Lord Jesus. Just read what he said and what he did. Uh, he told the Samaritan woman to get saved. It was like taking a drink of water. Mr. MacArthur said that uh, that's not really easy because he said there's sometimes in the Bible it's hard to drink water because the Lord Jesus said to the disciples when they asked if they could sit on his right hand, well, are you willing to drink of the cup that I drink of? Poor hermeneutic, the difficulty was not in the act of drinking, it was in the content of the cup. But he compared salvation to drinking water. Can I demonstrate? It's not hard. I needed to think about what to do. I've never read a book on how to drink water. Never had instruction on how to drink water. It's not complicated. You believe on the Lord Jesus. That is, you trust him and him alone for salvation, knowing who he is, knowing what he said you are and what he said he'd do for you if you trust him. But then I want you to notice the preparation. You see, God is at work, but we don't know where and in whom. So this eunuch was prepared. I mean, God had it all set up. He's reading in the gospel a prophecy of the, or in the book of Isaiah, uh, the, the gospel of the Old Testament. Somebody called Isaiah 53, the John chapter 3 of the Old Testament. He's reading in the Bible about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you what I tell our people. There are people that are prepared and ready and open and searching for truth, but they don't have a flashing blue light on their forehead. So how do you find them? You talk to everybody. You say, well, they're not interested. You say, have a great day. I, I gave a lady a tract on the airplane the other day, a very nice lady. She said, I'm Jewish. Oh, so that's all right. We, we don't discriminate. She didn't want to take the tract. Say, what did you do? I put it back in my pocket. Save that eight cents for somebody else. Now, if she'd been open, I'd be glad to talk to her. They don't want to talk about it. I'm not going to force them. I'm not beating them up. Uh, But somebody's open. Somebody's willing. We had a lady I met at Taco Bell. And I witnessed her and gave her the gospel. And she came and she grew and had a lot of victories in her life. And and, uh, got baptized. Her parents came when she got baptized. I think her dad got saved maybe at the time she got baptized. And she wrote me a note one time. She said, she got my illustration backwards. But she said, thanks for seeing the blue light on my forehead. I didn't see the blue light. I just knew I was there and she was there, and I thought maybe I'd give her a tract. God has prepared some. There's preparation in the prospect. There's preparation in the preacher. Here's a man who is really ready to share the gospel because he's been in a time of revival. And he doesn't have to think, okay, now I'm supposed to talk to him, and I've got to remember. No, it's just natural. 
I like what somebody said one time. If, if, uh, if Brother Van Gelderen and I went somewhere together and we ran into somebody that I knew, you know what I would do? I would introduce them. It's just polite. <laughs> it's just proper. Well, if the Lord Jesus is with me and I meet somebody, it would just be appropriate, don't you think, to introduce them. It's a natural thing to do. And then you see something of the priority. One sinner was important enough that the Spirit of God sent Philip from a great revival to the way toward Gaza, which is called desert. There was a preacher, a well-known preacher, and he told the story, I heard him tell it, of meeting a man and finding out the man was from Ethiopia. And he witnessed to the man, and the man said, oh, I'm saved. And he gave good testimony. The preacher believed the man really knew the Lord. And he said, oh, did a missionary lead you to Christ? He said, no. He said, my pastor is a native of Ethiopia. He said, well, did a missionary lead him to Christ? He said, no. Well, he said, was there a missionary that led uh, your pastor's pastor to Christ? And he said, no. And this man had a heart for missions, and eventually after pastoring a large church for a good time went to be a missionary at the end of his life and so he was interested in that part of it and he said no he said how'd you come to know the gospel and this man from Ethiopia said to him did you ever read Acts chapter (laughs) 8 he said we believe we can trace our history all the way back to that man in Acts 8 And before a missionary from the United States or England ever set foot in the land of Ethiopia, the gospel was being preached because of that one event to which the Spirit of God sent Philip away from the revival out into the harvest field. I could tell you the names of the brothers that were on the bus with my dad that day. I've met the daughter of one of them, preached for her husband. And they're good men and they're faithful men. But from the best I can tell. There's not a thing in the world that they've done in their ministries that has affected as many people as that one day on the bus. (laughs) My dad's won thousands of people to Christ. My sister lives in New Jersey, goes to see her once in a while, and, and he always goes to McDonald's in the morning. Dad loves McDonald's. The other day they had a bad ice storm in Greenville, so he went to McDonald's, and it was closed, so he drove to the next McDonald's. (laughs) And when he's there, he sees these old guys that are uh, breakfast McDonald's people, and he always gives them a tract and witnesses to them. And the last time he's there, he said, you know, I better do more than just give these guys a tract. And he sat down, opened the Bible, and led them all to Christ. Thousands of people he's led to Christ. A lot of people he's trained to win souls to Christ. He wrote a book back in the 60s probably called uh, Soul Winning Simplified or Fishing for Men. How to win people to Christ. He saw a lot of people saved at the Detroit Rescue Mission. He built the building they're in now there. And that ministry is now, it's not fundamental anymore, but it's the largest rescue mission in the world. And anybody I've ever had the chance to tell about the Lord Jesus goes back to my dad. (laughs) And a lot of other people like me. And it was just because a couple guys on a bus were good witnesses good testimonies. Revived people will naturally share the gospel. The Holy Spirit will move on you and prompt you and convict you. 
And if you're submissive and obedient, you'll be amazed. I, I could tell you stories the rest of the day. I'll finish the story about that man that had me crack the window. Well, he wanted me to open it wide. <laughs> I led him to Christ. He was uh, unemployed. The, when I went to that house, the front door had a sign that said, please use other door. And you picked your way over transmissions, bumpers, and various paraphernalia along the yard to get to his back door. And uh, he got saved. He came to church. He <clears throat> made a profession of faith. He got baptized. He wanted to be an usher, but he didn't have a suit, so he went to a garage sale for $5. He bought a green leisure suit. <laughs> Wasn't the norm for us, but I had not been more specific, so that was my fault, that is. And he became a greeter and an usher at our church. After he'd been saved a little while, he said, would you go visit these friends of mine? I said, sure. And I went by and I said, hey, I'm Pastor Ouellette. Uh, First Baptist of Bridgeport, Ralph Parrish, asked me to come by and visit you guys. They said, what in the world happened to Ralph? I said, what do you mean? They said, he won't drink anymore. He won't dance anymore. He won't smoke anymore. He won't play cards anymore. He says it's against the church rules. I think there are better reasons for not doing those things than just because of the church rules but I think if you just do what the man of God says if he's preaching the word of God and led by the spirit of God even if you don't understand it you probably won't hurt yourself he got his job back the last year he was in our church which would have been in the late 80s he gave $5,000 not bad for a guy on welfare with transmissions in his backyard and then he moved, job transferred him, and he asked me about a couple of different churches there, and it wasn't a church exactly like ours, and there was one that uh, they were aggressive in their soul and in their music would have been a bit to the left of ours, not evil, but not where we would have been, and there was another, their music was good, but they, they were not terribly aggressive and uh, not real hard at work to win people to Christ. And so I told him about both the churches, and I saw him some months later, and I, I said, where'd you end up? I thought he'd have ended up at the first church. I thought the music would have been kind of a non-issue with him. He'd only been saved two, three years at that point. And he told me he went to the other church. He said, I really liked that one, liked the soul, and I just I thought the music was more appropriate at this other place, and that's where I wanted to have my family and wanted to have them exposed to. It started out with the church rules, but after a while, I got in here and in here. Well, Lord... I don't know what you wish to do with this, but I do know there's a lot of people that would listen to the gospel if somebody would tell them. There's a lot of people that, as was the case with my father, just a good witness and a good testimony could change the entire direction of their life and affect thousands and thousands of others. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have in mind this story of Philip to be as easy for you to direct as he was to be as faithful to open our mouths and preach Jesus as he was, to be, Lord, as committed to your will as he was to leave a place he had to love being, where we're seeing phenomenal things, miraculous things happen to one person. And then, Lord, to trust that you know what you're doing and that there will be sometimes amazing and incredible fruit because of what we've done. Help it to be so, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.